This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 30th, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, online news editor David Grimm is back with a story on a possible tipping point for chimp retirement in the United States. Sophia Chen, a freelance science writer, brings a story on ghost imaging or using single pixel detectors to take pictures. Deputy news editor David Malikoff is here with a rundown of the record funding boost in U.S. science research. And finally, we have our monthly book segment with Jen Golbeck. She interviews Stephanie Elizabeth Moore about her book, First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Now we have David Grimm, online editor for Science. He's here to talk about his recent story on chimp retirement. Hi, Dave. Hey, sir. So we've talked quite a bit about chimpanzees in research here in the U.S., and they're basically a no-go. But can you remind us why people aren't using chimps anymore? Well, right, because basically there has been a growing movement for a long time to end research on chimpanzees, sort of both for moral and scientific reasons. Some people argue, you know, chimpanzees are so close to us, they shouldn't be in a scientific laboratory. But others have argued that they're really not that useful for scientific mm -hmm. research. But regardless of the reasons, in 2015, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service declared all chimpanzees in the U.S. endangered, which effectively meant that if you had a chimpanzee in a lab, you couldn't do research on it anymore, at least invasive research. You could still kind of do some behavioral research. And then the NIH quickly followed and basically said, we're not going to fund any more chimpanzee research. So everybody sort of assumed at the time, well, there were, you know, maybe about 700 chimpanzees still out in research facilities. They would all sort of immediately go to sanctuaries. And there's a handful of chimpanzee sanctuaries in the U.S. But that hasn't happened. In fact, it's happened very slowly from when those announcements were made until this past summer only 73 chimpanzees of close to 700 had actually been retired. That's like 10%. Yeah, less than 10%. Okay, so here we are today talking about this again. Why? What's what's the new what's the new movement in this? Well, so there's been some movement, and it actually concerns a couple of chimpanzees that I've known about for a while. These are two chimps named Hercules and Leo, and they're 11-year-old chimpanzees. They were born in the New Iberia Research Center, which is the world's largest chimpanzee research center, way back in 2006. And after a few years, New Iberia loaned them out to Stony Brook University in New York. Oh, I remember this story. Right. And they basically, they were doing experiments on the chimps to basically understand the evolution of walking. And what happened is while the chimps were at Stony Brook, an animal rights group called the Non-Human Rights Project 
launched a, a lawsuit which basically tried to get these chimpanzees and a couple of other chimpanzees turned into legal persons. It tried to get the courts to basically recognize that for the purpose of the law, these chimps were actually people. And if they would have won, they basically would have meant, well, you've got people now in a lab, you can't imprison people, mm-hmm. and so you've got to let them go. And so this was before the change in their status. This with... was before this was all this all happened this all started happening around twenty late twenty thirteen. Mm-hmm. And this was a legal effort that went through a lot of twists and turns, a lot of appeals. It lasted more than two years. But ultimately this group failed and they were not able to change the legal status of these chimpanzees or get them into a sanctuary, which was their original intention. But they have now moved into a sanctuary, not the ones the lawsuit people wanted, right? Right. right. So the, the Non-Human Rights Project wanted them to move to a sanctuary called Save the Chimps in Florida. But instead, just last week, Hercules and Leo, who by now had moved back to New Iberia uh, after having been at Stony Brook, were transferred to a sanctuary called Project Chimps, which is located in uh, the wooded hills of Georgia. And they arrived there late last week. Okay, so that's two. Right. <laughs> but right. It, it, why, are we, why are you calling this a tipping point or gaining right. momentum? What so, else is going so, on? So I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this story is because these are two chimpanzees I followed for a while. And I was sort of interested to hear sort of the end of their journey, but also because this actually movement that happened last week is actually representative of a larger shift that's happening in chimpanzee retirement. As of now, there are actually more chimpanzees in sanctuaries than are in research labs. So we're finally, some people say we're finally reaching this tipping point where the pace of chimpanzee retirement is finally picking up. And people are hoping that maybe within the next three to five years, in an ideal scenario, most, if not all of the chimpanzees that are eligible for retirement can get to sanctuaries. And where where are the sanctuaries? What's been the holdup with getting the chimps into them? Yeah, so one of the reasons it's been so slow, there's been a few reasons. One is that these sanctuaries, a lot of sanctuaries didn't have enough room. They a lot most of these sanctuaries rely on public funding and it can cost tens of millions of dollars to build out their facility. But there was also some hesitancy and still is a little bit of hesitancy by some of the facilities that hold these chimps by saying like moving them is gonna be really stressful. We think they should be retired in place where they know people. We think we're giving them good care here. So there was resistance on the part of the facilities. And then even the National Institutes of Health, which was supposed to be in charge of this retirement, especially for the chimps that they owned, which is about 300 chimps, they had developed a very concrete plan for how to retire these chimps. And that this has all changed. The NIH has got a plan. These sanctuaries are starting to build out the facilities they need. And some of these facilities that are holding the chimps are starting to release more of them to sanctuaries. All right, Dave. What else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about forest mites and how they get around the forest floor. And it's a hitchhiking strategy we would not recommend. They get on the slug bus. They get on the slug bus. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) And then also a story about some new insights into the disease lupus, some new molecular insights. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a controversial addition to the 2020 U.S. Census. Also a story about a massive cyber attack by Iran that appears to have stolen information from more than 300 universities governments, and companies. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can read his story and the others mentioned at sciencemag.org news. Stay tuned for Sophia Chen. She talks about capturing images one pixel at a time. Now we have Sophia Chen. She wrote a story about x-ray ghost imaging this week for the magazine. Welcome, Sophia. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to get to why it's ghosty in a little bit, but let's talk first about what this is, which is a single pixel photography, I guess you could call it. So how do you use just one pixel to take a picture? Okay, so the key to this technique is that you have to use patterned light. So it's called single pixel imaging because your detector, your camera is literally a single pixel. So you can think of it as like, if you zoom in far enough on your JPEG, that single pixel, it's it's just one color, it's a shade, it's, it's some shade of gray that indicates how much light has hit it. And so the weird thing about this is that you can actually get like a detailed image out of just the single pixel. The key to doing this is that you take thousands of these single pixel images and then you use your computer to analyze these images to look for patterns and the computer algorithm will end up being able to piece together an actual picture of the object that you're trying to image. So our our design team put together a graphic illustrating how this system works with x-rays. Can you kind of walk us through the components of that? What does this look like in the current setup? Uh, One of the things that they imaged, they imaged this seashell. So you imagine the seashell that you want to take a picture of. And so you illuminate the seashell with with x-rays. And so you've got an x-ray light source on one end. And then on top of the x-ray light source, you've got this filter pattern. So they use sandpaper, actually, because sandpaper is partially transparent to x-rays. And so it forms this kind of random pattern on top of the x-ray beam. So it goes through the sandpaper. And then it hits the object. Some of it goes through the object. And on the very end, you have a single pixel detector, which captures all the light that goes through the object. That is how you get your single pixel image. And then that gets fed into the computer. And the computer, it's already supposed to know like what the pattern is. So either you've measured the sandpaper pattern beforehand, or maybe in cases of like other wavelengths of light, you can actually program the pattern. You can't do that in x-ray, but point is the computer already knows what the pattern is. And so you have these like thousands of single pixel images that come from like the x-rays going through the object. And the computer has this algorithm that can figure out what the object looks like because it already knows what the pattern is. What do the images that come off of this device look like? I mean, could you see, you know, bones if there were bones? Because I know sometimes when I see an imaging paper, it's like you can't see with your eye what is actually <laughs> imaged once they say it is. Yeah. Well, so in the paper, they so they imaged a seashell and they imaged this like stainless steel block that has letters carved into it. And when you look at the picture of the letters, like you can actually read out the letters. So it's pretty grainy, but you can read the letters. And then the thing with the seashell is you can kind of see like the outline of the seashell at this point. So that's something that they have to keep working on. And so why why would someone want to do that? What are we what are we gaining by only imaging one pixel at a time? The thing that you can get from this is you can actually use a much cheaper detector because it's a single pixel. Like a single pixel is a lot cheaper than like a multi-pixel camera. And then the other thing is that you can lower the amount of light that you use to uh, take a picture of the object. Okay. And that's where we get to the x-ray part here. That's kind of the the reason you're writing about it now is there's this uh, experiment using x-rays in a single pixel detector. And and were they able to use a lower amount of x-rays to take these images? 
So in this particular demonstration, they were able to lower the number of x-rays that they were using by about a million times compared to previous ghost imaging experiments. So that's pretty significant. They think that they still have to continue to lower that dose um, if they're going to eventually want to use it to replace conventional x-ray imaging in hospitals. And the other thing is that to take these images, you have to take thousands of exposures, so it, t- it takes a really long time. So there are lots of engineering tweaks that would still need to be done before it can be used in the hospital. But there's a, the potential that you could produce images where in each exposure you literally use like a handful of photons, a handful of x-rays at a time. Wow. Yeah. Before this was an x-ray thing, people were using other kinds of light to do ghost imaging. And what, what is that useful for? Where, where has that been applicable? So there's this group in Glasgow where they have used ghost imaging to take pictures of gas leaks. So like they, they image methane. And hmm. yeah, and so the way that this works is they use infrared light, the exact frequency of light that that methane is excited by. And so so you image it by looking at how much of this light has been absorbed. And so the idea of using this with detecting gas leaks is that there are lots of industries that, uh, you know, have gas pipelines like natural gas or petrochemical companies where they have these these complicated infrastructures and they have to look for, you know, like if they need repairs. And so they think that this could be a cheaper alternative to what is currently being used. Could we ever use this in our favorite, you know, in our favorite cameras, the ones on our phone as a portable technology? I think that you can, but I don't know that you would want to because it's really like for a specialized use where like you really can't, you like don't have the light available or you don't want to shine light at your sample. So like, mm-hmm. you know, when we take pictures, like the sun is around. So like you, you know, like yeah. you, you, you have that light source. And so you don't really need this type of detection. You only need it in in scenarios where there is not a lot of light or you don't want to use a lot of light. All right. And now I'm going to ask the tough question, which is why is it called ghost imaging? The reason it's called ghost imaging is because in the first experiments that were done, they had this kind of distinctive setup where they had two beams of light. So they had one beam that was going through the object that was going that was going to be imaged. And then they had this other one that just like didn't interact with the object at all, which is pretty unusual for imaging because usually the point of imaging is you're capturing light that comes off of an object. And so that, that's right. that's your image. It's the light has to interact with the object. But in this case, they had these two beams of light, one of which didn't even go through the object. And it was kind of strange that they could get an image out of light that had never gone through the object at all. So they were invoking the whole spooky physics thing, basically. Yes, it was it was very spooky. Okay. All right, Sophia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was fun. Sophia Chen is a freelance science writer. She writes about ghost imaging this week in science. Up next, David Malikoff talks about how the U.S. Congress gave a huge boost to science spending in 2018. All right, so we got some big budget news this week, and David Malikoff, our, what do we say, deputy news editor with a special focus on policy? Coordinates our policy coverage. Coordinates our policy coverage is here to talk about what happened and what has been happening with the budget for science. So to start with, let's go back to last year. Wasn't the big concern there 
cuts to science? I mean, yeah, that's what's right. Going so on? It was, there were last year. So last May, people may have forgotten already, but last May, President Donald Trump rolled out his 2018 budget request to Congress. This is the annual right where the White House tells Congress what its spending priorities were. And the Trump administration made pretty clear that investing in scientific research was not a priority for this administration. In fact, the budget request they sent up to Congress included just tons of cuts to science agencies, bigger than a 20% cut at the National Institutes of Health, big cuts at the National Science Foundation, big cuts at the Department of Energy's Office of Science. So, you know, the scientific community was pretty concerned because here comes this budget going up to the Hill, and it's just a bloodletting for science. And they were bracing themselves, and there was a government shutdown on the way, and yet here we are with a lot of smiling faces in D.C. Yeah, that's right. So how we got here is pretty interesting. So, you know, what happened is that budget request goes up to the Hill, And then uh, it's the responsibility of the appropriators in Congress, the lawmakers who run the appropriations committees, which actually set spending levels every year for the federal government. And it was pretty clear pretty soon that they were not interested in the big cuts to scientific research that the Trump administration had proposed. But at the same time, they faced a really significant constraint. And that constraint is that in 2011, Congress passed a law which put mandatory caps on civilian and military spending. So it capped the amount of money that the government could spend either on the civilian side of the budget or the military side of the budget. And the result of those caps was that, for example, if you wanted to increase spending in one area, Mm -hmm. you were going to have to cut spending somewhere else. There simply wasn't enough money to feed everybody. So if you wanted to boost something, you're going to have to rob Peter to pay Paul. What kind of impact would that have on science spending? Well, so for example, at NASA, if you wanted to invest more money in planetary science, Mm -hmm. you would have to cut some other programs such as climate research. Right. And in fact, that's what some of the appropriations committees on the Hill did. In uh, in their first round of setting up a budget, they tried to adhere to the caps. And so you ended up with a lot of things that were the scientific community was not totally pleased about. So, for example, the National Science Foundation, the House came out with a bill that held the National Science Foundation's budget flat. Now, the appropriators said, actually, flat is pretty good considering how poorly a lot of other agencies are doing in this budget environment. But at the same time, the appropriators also said, you know, if we could break these caps, if we could raise these caps, there might be more money to go around for everybody. And that's what happened. How can you raise or break a cap? Is it another law that needs to be passed? So what had to happen was, and people may recall uh, several times, uh, we edged right up to a government shutdown because there were big disagreements about spending policy. And uh, one of the disagreements was over this issue of how to break the caps. The Trump administration and many Republicans in Congress and some Democrats too, wanted to break the caps because they wanted to spend more money on defense. Right. But- Many Democrats said, no, no, if you're going to raise uh, the caps on defense, we need to raise the caps on civilian spending, too. And that is what eventually happened. They reached a two-year deal, which raised the caps in 2018 and in 2019. So suddenly, there were tens of billions of additional dollars available to spread out among these various agencies. And who were the big winners among the scientific agencies? Well, the biggest winner by far was the National Institutes of Health. The House originally said, we want to give NIH 
an additional $1 billion in 2018. The Senate said, well, we want to give them $2 billion. <laughs> and then they compromised and they said, okay, let's give them $3 billion. <laughs> so NIH ended up with a $3 billion increase. That's about a, almost a 9% increase, a little over 8%. That is one of the single largest increases they have gotten in more than a decade. Wow. So that's a pretty big deal. What about NSF and NASA? How did they Yeah. Work? So basically a rising tide lifts all ships. And so the Department of Energy's Office of Science, they got a 16% increase, uh, more than $800 million. At the National Science Foundation, they got a 4% increase to $7.7 billion. And you know many of the other agencies the same. The smaller agencies also got increases. Were there any particular projects? These are all agency-based numbers. Are there any projects that got funded? that were called out by the appropriations? Yeah. So for let me give you an example. For example, the administration had proposed fully eliminating at the Department of Energy, for example, the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, ARPA-E as it's yeah. known. And this is a an agency that's uh, got three or four hundred million dollars. And it's basically its job is to take risky ideas that are kind of close to the marketplace, but just need a little extra nudge to get the technology, the energy technology ready to sell into the marketplace. The White House proposed eliminating that entire agency. Congress said no, and they gave it a $40 million bump. Any space things we should be thinking about? Yeah. So planetary science at NASA got a big boost. Uh, there's a particular mission to uh, the Jupiter, Jupiter moon of Europa that is a favorite of Representative John Culberson, who is the Republican who heads the House subcommittee that oversees NASA's budget. And that mission got a big bump in its planning money. So he really put an emphasis on asking NASA to get that mission ready to go, although it still would need approval from the Trump administration. And at the same time, Culberson and others uh, rejected uh, efforts to cut the earth science and climate science programs at NASA. Right. So going back to the caps for a minute here, that kind of puts a sunset or a time limit on how long this boon can last for the science agencies? Right. So scientists are celebrating this year, 2018, big year, record year for, for research funding. But because of the way these caps are structured, next year there will be less money available for subsequent increases. So researchers should not expect to see these very large increases during the next budget cycle, the 2019 budget cycle, which is for the fiscal year that begins in October. Mm -hmm. Congress is working on that 2019 budget right now. As the same as last year, the Trump administration came in with a 2019 request that also has calls for very large cuts to science budgets. My expectation would be that once again, Congress will not, uh, will reject most of those cuts, but they will not have the same huge amount of money to disperse across many agencies. So the, the rate of growth is not sustainable. Right. Can I just go back to, this is very surprising. <laughs> I really didn't think that that's what we would be this year. Um, is that kind of the reaction around? You know, it is surprising and it is not surprising. It is surprising given all the talk about budget constraints and the White House's lack of affection for research programs. But on the other hand, if you look at an agency like the National Institutes of Health, in 2016 and in 2017, in each of those years, lawmakers gave that agency a $2 billion increase, mm -hmm. right? So this year, they upped it to $3 billion. Uh, so NIH, for example, has always enjoyed bipartisan support, has tremendous support from disease advocacy groups. So, you know, it is a politically popular agency. Now, for some of the agencies that were clearly, you know, in the crosshairs, 
I think they are just mostly relieved that they not only avoided the cuts, but got to share in some of this largesse. It's also worth noting that if you look at the top nine civilian science agencies, together they got about $5.3 billion in additional money this year. But more than 60% of that increase went to a single agency to NIH. Um, So you may begin to hear discussion again of whether the federal investment in research may be tilting too much to biomedical research and whether the physical sciences might be lagging a little bit. All right. Thank you so much, David. Thanks, Sarah. David Malikoff is a deputy news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't miss our book segment up next with Jen Golbeck and author Stephanie Elizabeth Moore on the scientific importance of the tiny fruit fly. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to another episode of the book segment of the podcast. This month, we're reading First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery by Stephanie Elizabeth Moore. You're probably familiar with Drosophila. They're the fruit flies that invade your kitchen if you have some overripe fruit or if you leave a half-empty beer out on the counter. But they're not just household pests. Drosophila are important research specimens providing insights on genetics and serving as model organisms for all kinds of biological research. I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Moore, and I hope, Stephanie, you can start by just giving us some background on Drosophila, what they are, and their role in science. Yeah, so these are the same fruit flies that show up when you open a bottle of champagne or have a ripe banana on your windowsill in the summer. Uh, but starting in the early 1900s, became a, a favorite among geneticists because of the kinds of properties that many of us have heard, that they reproduce in large numbers. They also have a lot of very stereotypical visible features. So they have bristles or hairs in exactly the same pattern, you know, every fly. And so then when you see a mutant, you know that something else is going on that becomes of interest to the geneticist or biologist. In part, the reason they're important now is due to this long history of research. In some sense, uh, it didn't have to be this fly or this insect or an insect um, that took on this role, but it did. And there were many advantages of the system, including a, a relatively small genome. Now there's this rich history of knowledge. And on that base of knowledge, we are more able to build new knowledge. With all that knowledge, there are lots of stories about Drosophila. What's your favorite one that you share in the book? I guess I would have to say that it's one of the early stories. So I love the fact that uh, Alfred Sturdivant described in his own book, uh, The History of Genetics, that coming up with the first genetic map in, in any species, he was an undergraduate. He was working in T.H. Morgan's lab. They had a bunch of numbers on um, what we would now view as recombination data. And he describes looking at the numbers late at night as an undergrad and having this insight that the numbers he's looking at could be drawn out as a map and relative distances. So he did something incredibly straightforward. He drew a straight line with, I think, five or six tick marks along it, indicating these distances between um, what they were seeing as mutant phenotypes uh, between genes. But what a profound thing for the field of genetics. And there's a common thread between that to now when we stare at genome data and are trying to build increasingly accurate gene uh, gene annotation maps. To me, there's a, a direct connection there. So for me, that's one of, one of the favorites for sure. So if I walk into your fly lab, what am I going to see? You know, half of what you see is going to look like any other kind of biological, biomedical, molecular research laboratory with black benches and pipettes. But some other portion of the lab is going to be set up with fly stations um, for a process we call fly pushing. The flies, of course, need to be anesthetized so that they don't fly away or, or walk away. You could then essentially pour them out onto uh, what we usually use as a white pad 
Um, and then we put them under the uh, a microscope, a dissecting microscope, similar to the type of microscopes that are used in schools. So you don't need a high power microscope to see the details of a fly. So a lot of what people do as they're at a fly station is looking at these visible markers that might be indications of, you know, that a transgene is present or absent or a particular mutation is present or absent and sorting flies by sex and by these markers uh, in order to set up the next set of genetic crosses that are going to continue them on the path of addressing a specific question. Most of us aren't going to conduct experiments under Drosophila ourselves, but what's something that people could do to turn a scientific eye towards those fruit flies that show up in their kitchen? Yeah, sure. Well, being able to tell males from females, mostly based on size. So if you see a few flittering around, you can say to your friends around you, like, oh, that small one, that's the male. So that's kind of a fun party trick. Uh, and then getting a little more serious, uh, one of the things that flies deal with is that they get mites. And uh, I've seen pictures from the wild of various types of flies or bees or other things that have mites on them. So one of the things you could look for in your wild populations is do you see what looks like sort of giant to them tick catching a ride. Um, and that would be an indication that there are mites in the populations in the wild. Give us an example of why this fly, which has been used for such a long time in research, is still contributing to the cutting edge of research today. You know, I'm, I believe in knowledge for knowledge's sake, but I think even if you believe that, you know, for specific purposes, that that knowledge should be driving towards information that's relevant to human disease, we can still look at the fly as a, an appropriate platform. And one of the examples that, that I think is coming to fore now and is ex very exciting right now is its use in rare diseases. So in terms of human research, even if you have information about the rare disease and you know what gene is affected, you could be in a situation where the number of sheer number of patients is so small that you're limited in what you can learn about it. And you may lack a cell level understanding of mechanism of the gene. And so for both those reasons, flies then come in in great numbers and with a rapid reproduction rate and become a real boon to some of that research. Uh, so you can do things with large numbers and get the kind of confidence and statistics and information that you can do from, you know, simply from that very simple, straightforward thing that you can breed a lot of flies with a particular genetic mutation that echoes what's happening in the human population or in the in the human rare disease population. And then that becomes something that can be used for the genetic screen to find other genes that interact that may be appropriate targets for drug. They can be used directly in a as part of an overall drug screening pipeline towards the development of therapeutics or repurposing of existing uh, approved drugs. So I think rare disease is a very exciting area. Well, Stephanie Moore, thanks for joining us. The book is First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery by Stephanie Elizabeth Moore, and it's out this month. We'd love your feedback on the Science Magazine books blog, Books et al. And that's it for this month. We'll be back in April with another book for your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the science site at sciencemag.org slash podcast, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers.
Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.